This evening we're going to read from Mark chapter 2, and this will actually be the, the, uh, the passage that I'm going to uh, preach from here in just a moment as well. And uh, I'll read it and then we'll jump in. Feel free to follow along if you'd like to in your, your worship folder. This is Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 22. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and the worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark, and we've come to uh, really the third of three episodes that follow on a general overview of Jesus' ministry that we saw earlier in chapter 1. And the first two encounters with Jesus involved a leper and a paralytic. And here he comes in contact with a tax collector. And I think Mark is very deliberate in, after giving us an overview of Jesus' ministry, he gives us an account of these three individuals as a way of, in many ways, giving you a comprehensive vision of Jesus' ministry, of what it looks like when the kingdom of God breaks into someone's life. How does it actually break into someone's life? And what we've seen is that when Jesus and His power enters into a person's life, we see cleansing. We see the free offer of forgiveness. And as we'll see tonight, it all comes by grace alone. And and with each of these episodes... We also see a heightening amount of conflict. starts out rather small. And the conflict is beginning to mount between Jesus and the religious leaders. And the closer we get to Jesus' message of grace, the more the conflict begins to rise. Even to the point in chapter 3 where we, for the first time, hear a plot beginning to form. That will cost Jesus his life. 
And with Jesus' arrival and his ministry, there's clearly something new going on. The people have even noticed that this is, this is a new teaching with authority. And when he shows up to cleanse or to forgive the paralytic, the very end of the story says that they've never seen anything like this. Jesus' ministry is totally new. They're seeing things and hearing things they have never heard or seen before. And that always raises an important question. What will this mean for the old way of doing things? Now, I was reminded about this as uh, I have uh, moved recently into a new house. And moving is always disruptive. I was very used to uh, our furniture, our clothes... My boy's toys fitting in our house in a certain way. But now, after moving into a new house, that simply is not the case. When you move into a new house, it requires starting over. It requires rethinking where everything goes. I still can't remember from day to day where certain utensils are in the kitchen. (laughs) They're in different drawers from where I remember them being in the past. And no matter how hard I try, I simply am not able to replicate our house or previous houses. We're having to start over from scratch. And in many ways, Jesus' ministry is kind of like moving, but I think it's even worse. And here's what I mean. Jesus' ministry isn't the equivalent of reorganizing or just repainting a couple of rooms. It's more like tearing down the house to the foundations. Drawing entirely new plans and building an entirely new house only to realize that nothing you previously owned will work in the new house ever again. That's pretty much what Jesus' ministry is like. And that's what's happening in our passage tonight. The central idea, this idea of grace that we will see in this passage is what disrupts everything for both the religious and the irreligious. It's unmerited favor. And it is this idea, it is this message that outrages more than anything the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And so we need to see three things from this passage about Jesus and his ministry and this idea of grace that we need to see the puzzle of Jesus' ministry, the problem of his ministry, and then the purpose of his ministry. And to do that, I actually want to start at the, towards the end of the passage and then move to the beginning and end up in the middle, just so you kind of know the flow of where we're headed. First, let's look at this, the puzzle of what I'm calling the puzzle of Jesus' ministry in verses 18 to 22. If you notice here in verse 18, some people come to Jesus And they say to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? That Jesus, his ministry and the the practice of his disciples is becoming very noticeable. And it's not complying with the, the standards of the day, particularly the Pharisees, as we'll hear more of here in a moment. And fasting, though, in, in Jesus' day... It had become a, a, essentially a prerequisite of religious commitment. It indicated how serious you were, how loyal and devoted you were, and it was also demonstrated your attitude about sin, 
how seriously you took it. Not only in your own life, but it also became a way of telling how seriously other people took it. So you can just imagine if Jesus is not, and his disciples are not, fasting. Maybe that means Jesus isn't that serious. Maybe his claims to be God really are just a sham. Maybe he doesn't have as, as serious a view of sin as the Pharisees do. And he becomes suspect. And it is most likely the case that what's in view here are not is not the fasting that we read about in Leviticus chapter 16. Which in fact is the only, as far as I can tell, it's the only prescribed time of fasting in the Old Testament. And there are others we read about later on during the prophets. But almost always fasting commemorated a time of tragedy, national tragedy, or personal failure. It was, a, it was an activity of mourning, of grief. It depicted someone's submissive to God, submissiveness to God's will. And Jesus here is, in many ways, he's indicted along with his disciples for not doing what he's supposed to do. And the Pharisees, we learn from elsewhere in the New Testament, especially in Luke chapter 18, that they fasted twice a week in the story of the the Pharisee and the tax collector. becomes a primary tool of justification, of self-justification, of saying, I actually am doing what I'm supposed to do, and that makes me right with God. Well, Jesus hears this question, why aren't you doing this? And he has a fairly, I think, on first read, can certainly come across fairly enigmatic. And I want to begin with the two two parables that he tells in verses 21 and 22, and then move back up to, to verse 20 to try to help us to see how do you unravel the puzzle that has been presented to him. Why aren't you guys doing this? Jesus' response is, first of all, look in verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it. The new from the old and the worse tear is made. Then he says, And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. What what is he talking about? I think the basic point of these two parables is, is this. You simply cannot mix the new with the old. And Jesus is telling in a story form, my ministry, the good news of the kingdom that I am both proclaiming and I am bringing into people's lives is unlike anything that you've seen. It simply cannot be fit into the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day, their conception of God, how he relates to the human race, to the world, the old simply cannot be mixed with the new. And Jesus' point is what Jesus is doing can't be fit into any existing ways of thinking or living. And so when we come back to verse 19 and 20, Jesus compares his ministry to a wedding celebration. 
It's the exact opposite of the character of the question about fasting. Which is really about mourning and grieving. Basically demonstrating how sorry we are so that God will accept us. That's the essential line of thinking here. But Jesus says no. He says... Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? And what is so striking about this is that nowhere in the Old Testament is the Messiah referred to as a bridegroom. But on more than several times, God himself, the Lord, is described as the bridegroom of his people, as the husband to his people, as the lover of his people. And here, very similar to Jesus forgiving the paralytic in the previous story, he is taking to himself descriptions and an identity that really, up to this point, has only ever been used for God himself. It's another claim of of being divine, not just a man, but God in the flesh. And it would be unthinkable if he is the bridegroom and he has come to proclaim this good news. This is a, a way of saying it's time to celebrate. The kingdom has come. It is at hand. It is not time to grieve and to mourn. It's time to feast and to celebrate with Jesus, with the Son of God come in the flesh. Jesus' point here is that this is the time of restoration. This is the time of God's new beginning. He's starting over. He couldn't, in any more stark black and white terms, draw a line of difference between the ideas and the ministry and the expectations of the religious leaders of his time and this image of his ministry as a wedding celebration and identifying himself as a bridegroom and all of his followers as guests to the wedding. You don't go to a wedding celebration and look at all of the food and the drink and just look at it and not eat it. And in the first century, we only have, I don't know, like a three or four hour wedding celebration after it's over. In the first century, it was a week long Imagine being invited to that kind of wedding celebration and fasting for a week. Jesus is saying, that's crazy. I have come to bring a whole new order of things, a whole new way of relating to God. And it's open to a whole new spectrum of people. Which brings us to the problem of His ministry. You see, once we realize Jesus' response about this question of fasting, he takes opportunity to describe for us the newness of his ministry and that it's unlike anything that anyone has seen and most significantly is categorically different than the religious leaders of that day. We read now back up into verses 13 to 16. So if Jesus' ministry is pictured as a a celebration, a feast, Who gets invited? He went out again by the sea, 
And as the crowd was coming to him, he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and he followed him. Here we have Jesus. He calls Levi a tax collector to follow him. And a tax collector in the first century, the simplest way I know to say this, is even, it's even more outrageous that Jesus would call this man to be his disciple, one of his disciples, and even Jesus touching the leper earlier in Mark chapter, chapter 1. And the reason is, in the first century, the reason that it was so outrageous for Jesus to do this is that a leper didn't have a choice. But a tax collector did. A leper was a leper not because they chose to be that. It was simply the reality of living in a broken world. But a tax collector chose to exploit his own countrymen. Because a tax collector, in, in view here, was a Jewish man. Hired by a, uh, a, uh, under a Herod Antipas, actually, who ruled this part of Galilee where Capernaum was. And Capernaum was the first city that you would come into after you left uh, another area, province of Rome, ruled by another Herod, Herod Philip. So when you came to Capernaum, you would encounter a tax booth. And whatever goods you had as you came into that city, you had to pay tax on. And the Romans hired these tax collectors. And they, they were, tax collectors were able to lease their tax booth at a fixed rate. And what that meant was, as long as they got enough tax to meet that fixed rate, whatever else they made, they could pocket. And you can just imagine the degree of exploitation and oppression that could enter in. Where a tax collector would routinely and regularly rob his own countrymen by overtaxing them. And therefore, a tax collector became known as morally contemptuous, ritually unclean. They were social outcasts. There were none worse in the first century than to be a Jewish tax collector. It's hard not to read the story and, and think of the story of Zacchaeus, who was a tax collector who everyone despised. They were social outcasts. And Jesus calls this man into personal fellowship with him. And not only that, we're to in, imply here that Levi invites Jesus to his house. And he goes and he reclines at a table with Levi, and not just with Levi, but many tax collectors and then sinners. Which is just a catch-all phrase for describing anyone who disregarded the exclusive demands and expectations of the Pharisees and their various purity laws, especially when it came to sitting down and sharing a meal. Because in the first century, to sit down and share a meal with someone was a way of showing identification with them. It was a way of demonstrating intimacy, almost even equality, that you were on the same field with them. You were no better or no worse, but you were entering into life. And even here, the, whole, the idea here that they are reclining at table. Most 
Bible commentators say that that's a, a clue that this isn't just any normal meal, but it is a grand feast. And I think you're intended to hear in that an echo of this wedding banquet. That Jesus isn't just using that as an image alone, but is actually demonstrating His feast is open to those who do not deserve it. And in fact, have nothing to recommend themselves at all. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? See, Jesus, He is challenging every standard or basis for acceptance and fellowship with God. You know, the Pharisees come to Him and they say, why does He eat with tax collectors and sinners? And you notice, I think there's a bit cowardly here. They don't actually come to Jesus, they come to His disciples. And they ask this question. And Jesus hears it. And I want you to think about what he's doing. What provokes this question from the Pharisees. And it's because he, is, he provokes this question because at every point here, Jesus is fundamentally challenging every standard or basis for acceptance and fellowship with God that in any way would depend on human effort. He's saying it doesn't matter how much you pray. It doesn't matter how much you fast. It doesn't matter how much you go to church. It doesn't matter how much money you give. It doesn't matter how many marriages you've had. It doesn't matter how many people you've exploited. It doesn't matter how many people you have slandered and mistreated. There is absolutely no basis upon which any human being can therefore then say, God must accept me. Jesus shows us that the true basis for feasting with Him, who is the true bridegroom, is all of grace. It's absolutely free. There is no contingency. There is no condition. And we'll come back to that in a moment. And it simply cannot be, if, you, if you're following the story, on the basis of any moral or religious scrupulosity or mourning or grieving over sin in order to convince God. And here's why. Because the tax collectors and sinners were the furthest you could get from an observant, law-abiding Jew. That's the whole point. Jesus is saying, I have come as the bridegroom to set a table for people who absolutely have no right to be at my table. Now, why is that message of free grace so hard to accept? Or maybe you are someone here tonight and you do accept that, but do you enjoy it? Why is it so hard for us to accept and enjoy this message? And I want to suggest to you, here's where I think this passage really speaks to us. It's because we are constantly comparing ourselves to other people. And in the Bible, comparing ourselves to others is the antithesis of grace. And if it's left unchecked, it prevents you from experiencing God's grace or from extending it to other people. 
Let me give you, let me try to give you a couple examples of how I think this works. David Brooks, who's a commentator for the uh, uh, op-ed columnist for the New York Times, has written a number of pieces on what he calls a meritocracy. And that's a one-word description of what many people, how they would describe a broad swath of our culture. It's a merit-based culture. It's all based on achievement. That the way that you make it in life is you have the resume to get what you want and to get where you want to get. And he's written a number of pieces recently on the impact of what he calls a meritocracy on children, specifically how it plays out in the lives of families, parents, and children, and how it messes with the ways in which parents show love and the ways in which children experience it. Listen to what he says. The children begin to assume that this merit-tangled love is the natural order of the universe. The tiny glances of approval and disapproval are built into the fabric of communication so deep that they flow into the level of awareness. But they generate enormous internal pressure. The assumption that is necessary to behave in a certain way, to be worthy of love, to be self-worthy, The shadowy presence of conditional love produces a fear. The fear that there is no utterly safe love. There is no completely secure place where young people can be utterly honest in themselves. On the one hand, many of the parents in these families are extremely close to their children. They communicate constantly, but the whole situation is fraught. These parents unconsciously regard their children as an an arts project and insist their children go to colleges and have jobs that will give the parents status and pleasure, that will validate their effectiveness as dads and moms. And then he says, the culture of the meritocracy is incredibly powerful. Parents desperately want happiness for their children and naturally want to steer them towards success in every way they can. But the pressures of the meritocracy can sometimes put this love on a false basis The meritocracy is based on earned success. It is based on talent and achievement. But parental love is supposed to be oblivious to achievement. It's meant to be an unconditional support, a gift that cannot be bought and cannot be earned. It sits outside the logic of the meritocracy. The closest humans come to grace. Think about that. Here, what he's saying, his point is, even in the relationship that you would think we would have the most success at being gracious, of not being conditional with our love and acceptance, is in fact perhaps one of the most fraught ones. And I think it all comes from what Jesus is talking about in this passage. That at the very heart of the human condition is this propensity to compare ourselves. How do we measure up? And there is really almost no more powerful situation to be, to be in for that to play out than when you have little ones who emulate or look a lot like you and they reflect on you. This, this sort of in, internal need to compare ourselves comes bubbling over. And I think where that comes from is very aptly described in a a short piece here 
I just want to read to you. Why is this so difficult? Why is this so challenging to us? That Jesus comes with this message of grace, of unmerited favor. And I think it's very helpful to look at it like this, that it comes from pride. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. Now what you want to get clear is that pride is essentially competitive. In other words, our propensity to compare ourselves is really the fruit of our competitiveness. It's pride. Pride is essentially competitive. It's competitive by its very nature. While the other vices are competitive only, so to speak, by accident, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that the people... Are, we say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Pride is competitive by its very nature. That is why it goes on and on. If I am a proud man, then as long as there is one man in the whole world more powerful or richer or cleverer or fill in the blank than I am, he is my rival and my enemy. You see, that's what's happening in this, in this story. Jesus is taking dead aim on that heart problem that we have. That's what the Pharisees are doing here. They are comparing themselves. Now, this is a religious version of it. They're comparing themselves to people who they think are irreligious, but you don't have to be religious to have this problem. You can be irreligious, you can believe there is no God, and you can still have this incessant problem to compare yourself and spend the rest of your life trying to win. And the reality is you will always meet somebody who's better. It's an inevitable part of life. And therefore, how do you get out of this? We need to see, lastly, the purpose of Jesus' ministry. There's an irony here when Jesus responds to this challenge from the Pharisees when he says, they ask him, why is he eating? He says, appealing actually to a saying that they would agree with, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. That's a universally accepted proverb, if you will, in the first century. I think every one of us here would agree with it too. Those, you know, if, you, if, you don't need, if you're not sick, you don't need to go to the doctor. It's only people that are sick that need a doctor. But then Jesus turns it on his head. And he introduces an irony here when he says, what I mean when I say that, is I have come not to call the righteous, but I have come to call sinners. And what he's saying here is, is in effect, I came not to call those who think that they are righteous, but I've come to call those who know they're not. See, Jesus here says, I have come to save sinners. And what's most powerful about this is if you look here again in verse 20, Jesus says the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. 
What's he talking about? He's talking about there the day when he will actually be crucified outside the city. And all of his followers will mourn and grieve over his death. But then there is resurrection. That Jesus says, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Peter, in one of his his letters, tells us that Jesus suffered once for sin. The righteous for the unrighteous. To bring us to God. You see, the way out of this competitive, comparison, relentless effort to be sure that we're okay, that we are acceptable. It comes from seeing that Jesus, the righteous one, came to trade places with you and me, the unrighteous. And that's how you get into the feast. That's how you are brought to God. So what I want you to see here is that as unconditional as this invitation is, this feast is that Jesus has at Levi's house, it is absolutely conditional on his death and his resurrection. It's costly to make this free of an offer of grace. And when that message of grace seeps into your heart, into your life, only then will you be able to let go of the relentless Comparison. Only then will the pride begin to evaporate. Because grace means you have nothing to stand on. And at the same time, you've been, every, you've been given everything you need in Jesus to be righteous, to be fully loved and accepted. And nothing can take you from that. So the question is do you know this grace? Not only do you know this grace, but do you enjoy this grace? Let's ask God to help us with that. Father, we pray that as we reflect on this passage and this invitation of Jesus, this feast that he throws, we ask that you'd help us to experience that by faith. Even tonight, as we continue to worship and as we enjoy the Lord's Supper together, we ask that you would help us to see the good news of this story, the purpose for which you have come, that you have come not to save the righteous, but you have come to save sinners. Father, we give you thanks. We praise you for this great work of salvation. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.